welcome to the Text in Us podcast. I'm your host, George Fricks, and I'm here with my co-host, L. Grover Fricks. Hello. And we are going to continue our conversation about Genesis, picking up in Chapter 7 with Noah on the Ark. That's right. Here we go. Drum roll. Not really. All right. Chapter 7, verse 1, scroll of Bereshit. Yahweh said to Noah, come you and all your household into the box for i have seen that you are just before me in this era from every silent one which is clean you shall take with you seven seven male and female and from the silent ones that are not clean twos male and female also from the flying ones of the heaven seven seven male and female to keep their seed alive on the face of the earth For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain upon the land, forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe away all that rises that I have made from upon the face of the ground. And Noach did all that Yahweh commanded him. Noach was a son of six hundred years when the flood was water upon the land. Noach came, and his sons, and his woman, and the woman of his sons with him, into the box from before the face of the waters of the flood, from the clean silent ones, and from the not clean silent ones, and from the flying ones, and all that glides upon the earth, two, two, they came to Noach to the box, male and female, as God commanded Noach. It was seven days, and the waters of the flood were upon the land. In the year 600 of the life of Noah, in the second month, in the seven and tenth day of the month, on this day, the eye of the great deep was cleft open, and the latticework of heaven was opened. The rain was upon the land forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth sons of Noah and woman of Noah and three women of his sons with him came into the box. They and every living thing and their form and all the silent ones of their form and every gliding thing that glides on the land of their form and every flying thing of their form and every bird of every wing. They came to Noah to the box to two from all the flesh in which was the spirit of life. They entered male and female of all flesh and entered as God commanded him and Yahweh shut them in behind him. The flood was 40 days upon the land and the waters increased and lifted the box and it rose high above the land. The waters conquered and very much increased upon the land and the box walked upon the face of the water. The waters conquered more and more upon the land and covered all of the high mountains that were under all of heaven. Five, ten amma upward, the waters conquered and covered the mountains. All flesh breathed out their life that glides upon the land. The winged ones, the silent ones, the living ones, and all that teemed upon the land and all humanity. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life from all of the dry land died. All that stood upon the face of the ground was wiped away from humanity to the silent ones, to the gliding ones, to the flying ones of heaven. From the land they were wiped out. 
But Noah survived and those with him in the box. The waters conquered upon the land 50 and 100 days. All right. Thank you for reading. Um, I'm excited to get into this chapter and this text um, and discuss some of the things you have here. Um, so right off the bat, the first thing that I want to mention is in verse 1. Uh, you have, for I've seen that you are just before me uh, in this era. Mm -hmm. And usually uh, this is, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And the thing that I want to focus on in this verse is the difference between just and righteous. And that might seem like a small thing, um, but it is different. And so I wanted to ask you, why, why do you have just here instead of righteous? Yes. Uh, even before I get into that, I want to touch on the in this era rather than in this generation. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. The word for generation, um, as in these are the generations of Adam and Eve, mm -hmm. um, comes from the root for the word for child. My students know it. Yeled. Um, the word for era is the word dor, and it has to do with the spinning of the wheel of time, which of course is the heavens and the sky, and so it's not generations. Mm. And I don't think that we should conflate those two when they're so different. Right. Well, and uh, I think that's important because we are looking at this person, Noah, uh, as he is compared to not just uh, the people of his generation, but Right, an era feels broader than a generation to be doing better than for sure. Um, so just versus righteous. So um, I may be in more of a, minor a minority opinion here, although I know some of the translations um, take my side. <laughs> it's not really my side, but my favorite interpretation in different mm -hmm. verses, they'll often translate Sadiq to be referencing things of justice. And um, that's really common once we get into the prophets as that's a fairly more common interpretation that God is carrying, caring greatly and deeply about justice since you have the right. oppression of the alien, the orphan, and the widow. So there you'll see it translated that way all the time. But here, um, it's the same word. So, you know, one of my principles for translation is that I do want to be consistent um, because um, otherwise, you know, there's just more room for bias to slip in if we allow ourselves to switch out words when it seems subjectively like a good idea to do so. Um, but the word um, tzedek comes from this god from the region and when you look at these texts um, and you read the papers, these ancient um, texts are talking about how when the king, who of course is merged with the god in these Sumerian cultures, when the king slash god lays down the law, forth from the law comes this god justice. Um, and there is a female god that um, comes after Tzedek as well. And so it's um, really tied to the doing of the law and the proper carrying out of the law. Mm -hmm. When we hear righteous, we might more ascribe just from our culture, which potentially Christian culture, more moral value versus justice you know, is really those things on a bigger scale, not b just being patient with your sibling, right? But um, having to do with 
things of justice. And so he's a just man, and we see that um, in contrast to the violence of his era. So justice here is being juxtaposed to violence, justice being the opposite of violence, um, potentially. Um, and so that's also a plot, spoiler, spoiler alert, um, Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek, this is his name too, and so he says, my God is Tzedek, which you can decide if he's talking about the God Tzedek from this Sumerian culture, or if he's talking about um, Adonai, any, any of the above interpretations are possible. Okay. All right. Long explanation, but it gets to the point. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, and you know, there's, I feel like some uh, relevant conversation about what it means to be righteous uh, in his generation or in this era. Right. Right. Um, in the previous chapter, we saw everyone was doing violence, every path right. they took upon the earth, like right. a little crazy. I'm thinking of the giant ball from the first Indiana Jones movie that like barrels down and mm, he nearly uh -huh, dies in. Uh -huh. Not problematic films at all, but still very fun. And right. that's kind of what everybody's doing. And so Noah, even at least by not participating in that, right. is a person of justice. Right. Yeah. And I want to read this midrash real quick. Great. Um, that kind of touches on that topic, uh, which I found interesting. Uh, and it says, uh, in his generation... Rabbi Yochanan pointed out, but not in other generations. So noting that it's specifically in this era, but not all eras. Right. Um, however, according to Resh Lakish, the, uh, the verse uh, intimates that even in his generation, Noah was a righteous man, all the more so in other generations. Mm. Um, and so the idea here is that Noah was righteous in his generation, because of his own character, right? Mm -hmm. This is his own righteousness that he has worked towards mm -hmm. coming out of this place of unrighteousness. Right. And so it's suggesting that if he was born at a time in which people were more righteous, right. his righteousness would be that much greater even. Mm. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing to look at with Noah's character. Um, yeah, he's mysterious for sure. I mean, he's not going to look that great in a couple chapters, right? Right. Yes, that is <laughs> so, true. Pocketing that one for later. Yes. All right. What's next? Um, yeah. So I had a question about your format of numbers, and we've talked about number formats before, and we have another uh, kind of change here in the way that you've represented numbers in the text. You have seven, seven, and... Um, normally what we would see there would be seven males and seven, seven females. males and seven females, right? So it's a little bit different of a presentation of seven, seven. So can you kind of talk about how that represents what you see in the Hebrew? Yeah. Um, so kind of the topic we're talking about is syntax, which means word order. And, um, if you're not familiar and there are some things that I will regularly change in the Hebrew, like in, um, or from the Hebrew rather. In Hebrew, the verb always comes before the noun, so it mm -hmm. would be came Noah into the box um, rather than Noah came into the box. And so sometimes when something stands out to me as more, being more irregular, um, 
and more unusual i'll preserve it because uh i might not have a fantastic phenomenal creative insight about why it says seven seven it doesn't even say seven and seven it doesn't say 77 it just says seven seven twice interesting um yeah i think it's interesting too so whenever something strikes me as unusual or curious i want to leave it there for uh keener minds to pick up on and find something find right. something good in there because there is goodness in every ounce of the text so right. you don't want to cut it out yeah no that's that's great um and uh i came across i was kind of curious as to why there would be seven of the uh clean ones but of the not clean it was only two two um and i think there's a lot of different ways you could look at that but one of them was that uh there are more of the clean animals because they were needed for Noah to sacrifice when he comes out of the ark. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That is fascinating. I mean, you don't need that many animals for a sacrifice, but... No, and that's kind of another conversation that maybe we'll get to when we get to that chapter of why is Noah even doing this to begin with. Right. But I thought that was an interesting uh, point point made. Yeah, um, a little note about a not clean there. So there's a separate word for a clean and it's right. not that one. Um, so it says ain, ain means like I have not. So if I wanted to say, oh, I don't speak German mm-hmm. to someone in Hebrew, I would say ainly germanit. So I have no, <laughs> or I have no to me German yeah. literally. And so it's not that they're unclean as animals, although um, you, I think we see that later in Leviticus. It's just that they don't have cleanliness. They're like morally neutral, which is fascinating. Hmm. The first mention for unclean um, is used in Genesis 34, and it's in reference to what was done to Dina, and that's used three times. So our picture for unclean is, you know, when someone has completely encroached somebody else's boundaries and dignity and and, um, free agency. And so that's the context that we see unclean for the first time. Yeah, I think it's fascinating too. So these animals apparently don't fall into that category. They're just, you know, they don't have cleanliness. Right. Yeah, I, I read another teaching on that that was saying that the reason it says unclean here is because God is the one speaking. Mm. And uh, they pull from... Leviticus, or, or sorry, not from Leviticus. They pull from the Psalms that the words of the Lord are pure words, that nothing unclean comes from oh, his so mouth. So he can't say so the word unclean? he can't say the word unclean. <laughs> he so can what only he says, say having no cleanness. Right, so he does a workaround. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, uh, as mean. evidence of that, they point out how in Levit- Leviticus, when it's going through all of the different laws about the animals, when God is describing those, he uses that word and says, not clean. Mm-hmm. Um, or he describes what about the animal is not present, hmm. right? It's uh, all those things like the not cloven-footed or does not chew cud, right? right? And that's how God describes the clean versus unclean. Super interesting. Well, yeah. we'll all learn something today, folks. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was super interesting. I, I, I liked that. It was it was good. Um, yeah, there's one other thing that I wanted to mention that I thought was fascinating about the uh, unclean animals that came by twos. Okay. And uh, 
Uh, this is more of a fun thing. Midrash? Okay. So it's a fun midrash about unicorns, Ooh. Uh, which is always interesting. <laughs> and I say unicorns, the uh, the KJV translates this word as unicorns. So there's this creature. I'm all in. Yeah. Uh, there's this creature, which I hope I'm pronouncing this at least somewhat close, but the, the re'em. Okay. The re'em. The re'em. Uh, re I think. Um, just run with it. Yeah, I'm just going to run with it. And the the Jews asked this question about uh, how did this creature get on the ark and survive? Because this is a gargantuan creature. Uh, unicorns are enormous. Good well, to know. Yeah. <laughs> gargantuan so, unicorns. Yes. And uh, and when I say gargantuan, uh, uh, it's dropping stop rivers from flowing wow right? that's so, a very specific metric of measuring something it is size. yeah and there's a like there's a crazy midrash about how david was wandering with his flocks and accidentally climbed one of these thinking that it was just a oh, hill no. and it lifted up his head and brought him into heaven <laughs> and he could see god <laughs> anyways so there's a midrash about how what these a way animals to have a divine encounter accidentally yeah. climbed a unicorn head right but there's a midrash about how did these animals survive the flood and it says that Noah tied them to the side of the boat nice and they swam and they stuck their nostrils through a hole in the side so that they could breathe wow <laughs> so Noah is like santa except for the reindeer are a giant unicorn. right yes <laughs> yeah and we see this word used throughout the text a number of times and usually we just uh translate it as um uh a wild ox um, oh, interesting. Yeah, it shows up a lot. Uh, I, I say a lot. It shows up a couple of times. Like uh, in Every Job. Every chapter, there's a unicorn. Uh, in Job, it says, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? And well, it goes I'd on. way rather have that be a gigantic unicorn. Right. Uh, okay, I'm all in, George. You yes. convinced me. Thank you for sharing. You are welcome. Okay. Um the next thing that I wanted to look at is um, kind of this question on how long did it take Noah to build this ark um, mm. that he's in. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because there's not really a time given. Nope. And I always feel like I was presented with a time of, oh, man, it took Noah at least 100 years. Right. And I don't know where that idea comes from because it's not in the text. Uh, and I was expecting to find it, and I don't. Maybe it's coming up soon because I feel like I've read those same teachings, and I know it must be the next next chapter, perhaps. Like I, it took this many days. We'll see. Genesis eight. We'll circle back. We'll circle back. We'll see. Um, uh, the midrash argues about it. Some say five years. Some say fifty-five years. Huh. So. Well, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who, you know, some sects. Um, believe that he was the Messiah in um, Judaism. Not all, some. Uh, he said that it was like 120 years, I think. He had a great thing about like Noah failing to evangelize properly yes. um, and it being because he didn't truly love the people who he was trying to call right. on to the, um, into the box, but rather that um, they could tell he had ulterior motives or was just doing it because God told him to, which I think is fascinating because it sounds an awful lot like our modern conversations um, in Christianity. But, right. you know, yeah. it was 50 years ago talking 
Judaism. So right. fascinating. Well, yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah, I I did read that, uh, or at least a midrash that kind of described that 120 year period, and part of that was because Noah had to grow the trees himself. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that it takes a gopher tree, which we talked about last time, 120 years to grow. Indeed. A bunch of reeds, but that was my favorite interpretation. Okay. Well, moving forward, mm-hmm. uh, I want to look at verses 10 through 16. Great. I forgot to say before that before we were looking at verses 1 through 9. Uh, so second section, verses 10 through 16. Great section. It is a great section. One of the things that instantly stood out to me in this section was this uh, verse 11. It says, On this day the eye of the great deep was cleft open, and the latticework of heaven was opened. Um, and I don't know what the eye of the great deep is. Uh, some crazy Leviathan or something, but I, I was curious uh, about that. Yeah, so the word is um, me'ain, um, which sometimes gets translated fountains. Um, okay. But right, right. Um, you might have heard me talk about before on the Bema podcast, the mem prefix can mean a couple of things, but one of its meanings is place of. Um, but the main part of this word is the word I. And so it's like the place of the eye of the great deep. Mm. Um, to whom is the word for great deep? We see it in Genesis 1.1. It's kind of a mythical, very scary place. If you read uh, a lot of the Psalms about um, the deep and the depths and the waves and the breakers come from that place to snatch you up and take you down. Um, so between that line about the eye of the um, great deep and the language used to talk about conquering um, later on, which I think is super interesting because uh, I was raised with those lines being prevailed, which I don't know why I didn't think about what prevailed means, Uh Um, but it basically means conquered, right? So it's kind of this image of, um, in combination with that weird line about how the ark the the box walks on the water uh which by the way jesus bells should be ringing there you know box walking on the surface of the water we have to get into the ark to be safe jesus also walks in the water we need to be with jesus to be safe yeah you know full circle but um but anyway it's kind of like these two this great being has come up like this ancient primeval um creature almost has been awakened and its eye like breaks open and that's what all the water comes from and then it's conquering and it's decimating extremely personified right Um, while our little box even though it's a you know longer than a football field but football field size box apparently with a huge huge unicorn tethered to it (laughs) right a huge unicorn massive gargantuan i mean it kind of fits it's a little bit deistic to have two different creatures not deistic what am i thinking of um i'm thinking of dualistic there we go it's a little bit dualistic to have two different creatures but i'm kind of here for it um it's just so much more visceral um it reminds me of you know sin crouching at the door in genesis 4 as this like embodied physical monster Mm. that's waiting to get you and here Uh we have god waking up this primeval diluvian um being right. who conquers everything and kills everything um and also separates it a little bit from god killing everything right which is always an interesting theological tension yeah interesting well 
believe it or not, uh, the unicorns are not the only thing that the Midrash says was clinging to the side of the ark. Oh my! I know. Barnacles? What do we got? <laughs> no. So there is a, I would say, obscure reference to Og, the king of Bashan. Sure, sure. Everybody's favorite Bible character. Everybody's favorite character. And he clung to the side of the ark like a barnacle? <laughs> and uh, Yeah, so... What? <laughs> yes, so on, if your Og. child asks you to tell you about Og, um, who survived the flood, he is referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Oh, okay. He so... doesn't make it long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but he's one of those characters that's listed before the flood and after the flood. He uh, he's not listed before the flood uh, in the text, uh, but when he's referenced in Deuteronomy, because Israel comes and conquers this king Og, it says only Og remained of the remnant of the Rephaim. Okay. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. It is not in oh, yeah, Rabbah yeah, 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 yeah. of the Ammonites. Uh, uh, sorry, is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit, yeah. which I looked that up. It's 13 and a half feet by six feet. So very long bed, very wide. Long fellow. He's a tall man. And they say that Og, king of Bashan, uh, sat himself on one of the rungs of the ark's ladders and swore to Noah and to his sons that he would be their slave forever. No. So what did Noah do? He punched a hole in the ark and through it he handed out food to Og every day. Well, that's very nice. <laughs> I know. Didn't bring him in, but <laughs> yeah. uh, somehow punched a hole through the ark and handed him food. Nice. So. Maybe that's a story about um, people who convert or something, you know, because Rahab is kind of brought in. Yeah, I don't know. That's not a word. Yeah. You know, because there's also competing midrash about people who change their mind in the last day and don't get on the ark. So rough, rough. Well, what a midrash palooza we're having today. I know. We should Just carry on one after the other. Okay, so the rain was upon the land forty days and forty nights, and everything dies. Yes. Um, and that brings us into section three, which starts at verse seventeen through twenty-four. Great. And one of the things that stood out to me about this section is. Uh, where you describe the height of the waters uh, that covered the mountains. And normally, uh, we just see it describing that the waters were higher than the mountains. But you've included that it's 15 ama upward. So 15 right. ama above. 5, 10 ama upward. Yeah, I confess I don't have a super um, meaningful idea about why specifically it's 15 or 510. Um, all I got is like Torah and then, oh, mm. I don't know, 10. <laughs> but the fact, I mean, it could have just said it covered the whole earth, right? But right. it specifically says that it conquered and covered the mountains, which is one of our first uses of covered, by the way, which is super important for atonement, but fascinating. Okay, but the waters conquered and covered the mountains. Why does it feel the need to include that? The, what comes to mind for me is studying the archaeology of, you know, Iran, basically, um, is Ashur, as in Assyria. Um, Ashur is not just the name of the empire, it's the name of a city. Um, and their god there is not just a statue like Marduk is more of a statue. Um, the mountain itself that's in town, that's around in the middle of the settlement, that is the living embodiment of their God. Mm -hmm. So 
while usually sometimes there's a little bit of crossover in the Psalms, but usually it says that God dwells upon Mount Zion, not on Zion, but it doesn't usually say that God is Zion for them. Their God was this mountain, which is a pretty powerful image for them because um, the Assyrians famously captured, they kidnapped, they godnapped Marduk um, and they took him to their capital. And that caused such deep resentment from the Babylonians that um, a couple generations later they rose up and toppled Assyria. So there you go. Don't steal people's gods. It's rude. Um, But the point is you can't steal a mountain. So it's a pretty powerful move. And so here God, as he's wiping out these spiritual forces, right? The, because we had the Nephilim running around, we have um, the Elohim are down there, whatever you've decided to um, theorize about what either of those things are, both are whichever direction, totally fine. Um, We have these people running around. So this spiritual element to mountains that we've kind of missed um, is being put under the dominion of God here as um, this being, you know, that he's unleashed is laying waste to everything and conquering everything, including the mountains. All right. Well, that's all I had. Was there anything else that you had from this section that stood out to you that you wanted to talk about? I mean, the very last thing after we get, um, it is interesting to me. It doesn't say that they died. Um, it's a different word about like their breath ceasing, just fascinating. Um, yeah. Maybe they all got resuscitated. <laughs> I don't think that that's the case really, but there's a word for died that gets used constantly. And I mm. hadn't seen this word before. Um, interesting. I wonder if it has to do with the idea of drowning specifically. Maybe could be. I'll have to check. Um, I can't think of other characters in the text who drown, but not really water-going people usually, our right. characters. Um, but yeah, the very last line of this chapter is that the water is conquered upon the land 50 and 100 days. And again, if we go with this primeval being, a little bit dualistic type of lens, I just think that's interesting. Like while God may allow a... a you know, an embodied, um, what we might call evil to run rampant for a certain amount of time, that time in which they are victorious comes to an end. Like it was 50 days and 50 days and a hundred days, the end. Right. And then the very next line that in the, uh, chapter after is going to bring all this new, Whew, a relief, right? And so phrasing it that way, again, just um, paints paints the image differently um, as we think about how could this story even be and how might we even like having this story in our canon of who God is and stories that we retell and teach to our children for some, you know, kind of wild reason out of all the stories. Um, but but yeah, I think it paints paints a different picture. So curious to hear anybody else has insight we've had good questions come up um about the documentary hypothesis Mm -hmm. so i'll have to bring that in next time we have a genealogy coming up which shouldn't be too long uh so keep sending in those questions so that we'll have some good good stuff to talk about yes for sure yeah we've got genealogies coming up uh after the flood story so all right pretty pretty dang soon is what i'm hearing there pretty soon All right. Well, thanks so much for listening, y'all. Yeah, thanks for listening. This has been the Text and Us podcast. Uh, If you have questions, make sure you email those in 
to elgrovervricks at gmail.com. That's the one. And we look forward to discussing chapter eight. Tune back in. See ya. Bye.